Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Calum Henderson. Coming up on this week's episode... Actually, as a massacre, it's um, it's not particularly effective because many of the people managed to get away. What new archaeological research tells us about the notorious Glencoe Massacre of 1692. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by The Past, a brand new website that brings together the most exciting stories and the very best writing from the realms of archaeology, history, heritage and the ancient world. You can subscribe to The Past today for just $7.99 a month by visiting our website at the-past.com forward slash subscribe. Glencoe lies in probably the most famous glen in Scotland. Its reputation linked not only to the beauty of the mountainous scenery, but also to the darker events that took place there. On 13th of February 1692, it was the site of the Glencoe Massacre, when dozens of members and associates of the Glencoe Macdonalds were killed by Scottish government forces. While aspects of the Glen's history have been studied in detail, the physical remains of early settlements have only just begun to be investigated. There are plenty of ruins from 19th century sheep farms, but where are the remains of houses that belong to the 17th and 18th centuries? Now archaeologists at the National Trust for Scotland have been surveying and excavating a number of locations throughout the Glen in an effort to find out. Derek Alexander is Head of Archaeology at the National Trust for Scotland. He's written an article about the findings of a recent dig in one of the Glencoe townships for the latest issue of Current Archaeology, which you can also read online at the past website. I spoke to Derek last week about the work, asking if, to begin with, he could give me some more detail about the background of the Glencoe massacre. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those events in Scottish history that's sort of quite well known. A lot of people sort of know of it. I think probably less people know about all the details behind it, and it's quite complicated, quite a complicated story. I mean, it really goes back to um, the Glorious Revolution when uh, um, William of Orange is invited across uh, to England to take the, the throne, and James II and Seventh flees the country, effectively handing power over to William and Mary. Um, and that results in really what becomes the first Jacobite wars or Jacobite risings. Um, and there are a number of battles, mostly not in England, but mostly in Ireland and in Scotland. So in Ireland, we have the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. Of course, the Glorious Revolution, 1688, is when he comes across. Um, and there was opposition to that. You know, the Scottish um, um, Parliament uh, accepts it and he becomes King of Scotland as well. But there's obviously lots of supporters. And of course, Jacobites are supporters of James. Um, so that's where the, where the word comes from, from the Latin for James Jacob. Um, and a... After about maybe three or four years of campaigning against the opposition, it's sort of come to a more sort of, I wouldn't say stalemate, but things have calmed down slightly. So in Scotland, we'd had battles at Killycrankie in 1689 and Dunkeld, uh, and then sort of opposition sort of frittered away, and there was a Battle of Cromdale in 1690 as well. And by 1691, William was pretty much in control, although he was having to use lots of troops to keep the Highlands suppressed. Um, so he was garrisoning large areas of the Highlands, mainly because many of the Highland clans were uh, Jacobite supporters, supporters of James. Um, and he was having to, William was having to use lots of troops 
to garrison these unruly parts of the country, and the the clans could raise large numbers of troops quite quickly, so were always quite a threat. So he wanted to bring them into the sort of king's peace, um, so that he could really get use those troops to go and fight in wars in Europe, um, which is really where he was under most pressure. Um, so he takes um, the opportunity of relative calm to enter negotiations with the Jacobite supporting clans. Uh, and there's, it's quite a long protracted set of negotiations with, with go-betweens between the Scottish government and the, the clan chiefs. Um, and what they say is, that, well, we'll let you back into the king's peace um, if you sign a declaration of um, allegiance to William by the 1st of January uh, 1692. Um, there's a bit of delay on many sides. Um, uh, the McDonald's of Glencoe are one of the uh, smallest clans, and McKeon, who is their chief, um, the head of the McDonald's of Glencoe, um, sort of leaves it to the last minute. Uh, he gets the permission. They, they they get the permission from James, who's in in Europe at the time, to to. Okay, go sign up the piece if it's if it's a useful thing. But that comes late, and he's late in signing. He goes to Fort William on Hogmanay, which is New Year's night, basically. Um, so he leaves it right to the last minute, uh, and then arrives at Fort William. And the commander Hill at Fort William says, "I can't take your signature. You have to go to Inverary, which is down the west coast. It takes him five days to get there." And he's late in getting there. And when he gets there, having been arrested once and, put, and held for a couple of nights, he gets down and uh, the sheriff that he has to sign in front of, who's a, um, a Campbell in Inverary, is, uh, is away on his, on his holidays sort of thing over, over winter, over the, the Hogmanay period. Um, so, yeah, he's delayed in time, doesn't sign for uh, five or six days late. Um, and there's a bit of debate about how that's treated. Um, he thought he had signed and it was uh, that was okay. It was in time. Um, uh, uh, what happens is really uh, a number of people in the Scottish Parliament at the time, the Earl of Stair, um, use it as an excuse. Um, the McDonald's of Glencoe uh, are a small clan. There are uh, quite a uh, I suppose, what, what would I say? They're, they're, they're quite a nuisance. Uh, they've raided a lot of cattle. They were involved in Killycrankey. On the way back from Killycrankey, they raided a lo- large part of Loch Tayside, which is, again, Campbell Territory, Glen Lyon, um, that side, sort of area. Um, so they want to use this as an excuse to set an example to the bigger clans. Uh, and so what happens is an order is given uh, that they will... Um, they will turn on the the, the Glencoe uh, McDonald's and set an example of them so that other clans will come into the King's Peace because they, they'll know what will happen to them if they don't. And it, Glencoe is also useful because it's a narrow valley um, and it's you know quite restricted um, and small number of people, but very little chance of getting away if you block either end. So it can be quite efficient in terms of a massacre. So they send two companies of Argyle troops, 120 men, uh, um, uh, under the command of uh, uh, Captain Robert Campbell of Glen Lyon uh, into Glencoe, uh, and they are billeted there. They didn't know that, that they were being sent there uh, with these orders in mind. They don't get the orders. They stay 
and are billeted with the McDonald's for two weeks. Uh, so they arrive at about the, the start of February, and then on the evening of the 12th of February, um, they have given the orders. Now, they've spent most of that time drinking uh, and gambling and hunting and living in the townships uh, that are up and down the Glen, not just one village, it's a set of um, villages or townships up the Glen, so maybe about uh, six or seven different townships. Uh, and they're probably staying in the barns and the byres and all that sort of thing. Uh, and the evening of the uh, 12th of February, they're given these orders to extirpate or to cut off root and branch all under the age of 70 to wipe out the McDonald of Glencoe. Now, the guy in the Glen, Robert Campbell, is given the orders to, to start the massacre at five in the morning. And what's going to happen is there's going to be 200 men come from Fort William, are going to block off the sort of north end of the Glen uh, at, uh, at Loch Leven, and another 400 are going to march over the top, over the Devil's Staircase, and block off sort of the southeast end of the Glen. The guys at the north end don't arrive until uh, seven, and the guys at the south end don't get there till 11. So actually, as a massacre, it's um, it's not particularly effective because many of the people managed to get away. Um, on the night or in the morning, at five in the morning, uh, the guys who are in the Glen under Campbell of Glen Lyon turn on their hosts, uh, and about 36, 37 people are killed, mostly women and children, but uh, quite a few men. Um, but obviously there's probably about 400, 500 people live in the Glen, so quite a lot get away, although we don't know how many folk died in the snow as well, So because it was in February in Glen Cove, which is uh, pretty pretty grim at the best of times, so it'll be cold and wet. Um, but a lot of them managed to escape to the southwest and over into Appen. Um, so McKeon himself is killed as he um, goes to greet the the soldiers in the morning, he thought they were just marching away. They were heading off to move against one of the other clans. He thought his clan was safe um, and he is shot just as he's getting out of bed, basically. Uh, and there's lots of tales about, you know, the, the massacre. And in fact, probably the best publication, if you want to read about it, is John Preble's book, The Glen Glencoe, which is still the, written in 1966, still the best overview of, of the of the, the massacre itself. Uh, it's, it's a very good read. Um, he was a journalist for the BBC, so it's, the historians have a, have, have, have a bit of a beef with him in terms of the, his, where a lot of the information comes from in terms of his sourcing of material, but it's really good read um, and goes into a lot of the background. So that, that's, that's really what, what happens. Um, I suppose a, it then goes down, you know, in, in sort of history infamy, I suppose. The main reason for it is because of this, you know, the fact that they're um, they're breaking Highland hospitality or any hospitality really. Um, they were put up uh, and billeted with the with the people in Glencoe and then turned on their hosts. Um, Should we go on to move on to um, Achtree yes. itself? Achtree. Um, yeah, this is one of the townships uh, in the Glen that you focused on. Why did you choose this one to focus on, and what kind of evidence were you looking for? 
Well, I mean, what the first thing that we did was look at for, for good map evidence. There's not a lot of good map evidence for the 18th century Scotland. Um, the, or, or actually, I say 18th century, I'm saying that because that's when the main maps are. Actually, we're looking at late 17th century, aren't we? Um, there's, well, there's nothing for then for, for Glencoe. The, the first map is General Williams Roy, Roy's military map of the mid-18th century, so 1740s. And it marks on all the townships. Um, so from the, the mouth of Glencoe, we have um, Invercoe and Carnock and in Inverigan, uh, uh, Lickentium, uh, Achnacon, which is the field of the dogs. And then the furthest up the glen, um, highest up the glen, furthest to the east, is Achtriechten, which is marked there. And the reason we chose this site um, is because uh, it's on National Trust for Scotland land. Um, it's in a, a very spectacular part of, or probably the most spectacular part of the Glen. But because it's away from current settlement, uh, it's probably the best preserved um, of the settlement sites. Um, subsequent settlement was to the south of it, on the south side of the old road. And there hasn't been modern development, so we're not lots of cottages and houses and uh, forestry plantations. So further down the Glen, a lot of the evidence of the townships has been built over and removed. So this for us was the best site to choose. And we'd done some survey work there previously, but just enough to identify sort of there are, there's humps and bumps. They think people drive through Glencoe and they see a lot of stone buildings, a lot of stone ruins. And um, most of those relate to the 19th century sheep farms. Um, and at Achtreichten, it was apparent that, in fact, the sheep farm was on a different site to the earlier township, uh, and it's on the opposite, on the north side. The earlier township's on the north side of the old track or the old road that runs through the glen. And when we went and had a look at it, and having worked on other sites at, such as Ben Laws, where we were looking at sort of 17th, 18th century township sites, I quickly recognised that there's a number of buildings in here. There's, there's, there's eight marked on Roy's map, and when we walked over this site, and every time we go back, there's sort of hints of something else. But we've now identified the remains or foundations for five structures, uh, three of which are sort of parallel to the road, um, and I think are probably houses, uh, and another two that are sort of up and down the slope and across the wind, which are probably barns or byres. And there's about four different little enclosures behind some of the houses where there were growing crops, so little kale yard type things. And we can see rig in some of them uh, for cultivation. And then I always want to say, so downwind, so uh, the wind comes from pretty much from the west. So to the east of the settlement, there's the remains of a, a grain drying kiln. Um, where, they, where they would have dried their grain before uh, it was getting ground for making bread or for making beer and malting or, or for making whiskey. Um, and it has to be downwind of the settlement because these things go up and smoke quite a lot and sparks go off and go into the into the thatch and that's the last thing you want to do. So um, a nice little settlement and, you know, uh, very identifiable, but you know, quite subtle archaeological remains. It's not a site that you would wander over and it's shouting out at you, you know, I'm, a, I'm an archaeological village, come and look at me. So it's difficult, unless there was somebody there to point it out to you on the ground, there's not a lot to see in the surface. And I think that's largely because much of the material had probably been robbed out, um, some of it for the 19th century farms, the sheep farms, and 
some of it probably for the road as well and the road the old road through the the the, the, the glen would, would have been upgraded and widened on a sort of ongoing basis and i think they probably pinched a lot of big stones and that sort of anything useful uh, from the buildings that were upslope moving on to i think you do talk in your article quite a lot about structure one do you want to give me an idea of you know uh the people who lived there what and what their lives would have been like do you, do you want me to talk about the structure and what it consists uh, yeah, of? Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, what we've done. Yeah. Okay. So we, I mean, we've we've done survey work of the site, but we've also done excavation. Uh, the first year that we did excavation, we did sort of small trial trenches and little test pits and a wee bit of metal detecting over uh, a number of the structures, uh, and then we then focused on one of the houses. Um, so structure one, basically house one, which is closest to the road. Um, and it probably is about uh, 11 metres long and by s about six metres wide across the wall, so maybe four metres wide in, in the interior. Um, and we excavated the entire length of it uh, and initially came down quite quickly onto floor surfaces, um, so flagstone floors. There wasn't a big build-up of material on the top, so it suggests it probably had been robbed of quite a lot of its you know, bigger stones. Uh, and it had a central doorway, uh, and on the left, it was definitely there was sort of flagstones leading into the interior. Uh, in the left-hand side, there was uh, quite a lot of flagstones, and then set into the floor, there was a the, uh, the lower stone of a, a rotary quern for grinding grain. Quite a lot of charcoal, which suggests, I think, and burning suggests actually more that I think there was a fire. Um, in that end of the building, so probably kitchen, living area. Uh, and at the other end of the building may also have been a sort of area for, for sleeping. It's possible that they uh, overwintered cattle and things in there because there's numbers of drains uh, leading out the door um, and leading towards the wall. Um, the walls themselves are very poorly preserved. We've got only the lower courses of the interior faces. Um, and so I think a lot of the big stones that were probably in the lower courses um, have been robbed uh, and maybe about a metre, 80 centimetres, about a metre wide. And then we reckon, and it's difficult to know because not a lot has been preserved, that the upper portions uh, could have been built of turf. There was, there was a fair amount of material um, uh, spread across the interior and under some of the, the, the flagstones that had been moved that suggested there might be an element of turf construction there difficult to prove without it being preserved um, to a higher extent, but um, would have been quite nice if, 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 if it hadn't been robbed. But um, on the basis of other examples of that period, then that's the type of thing that you would expect. A structure that would be of mixed construction, bits of stone, probably would have had a crook frame uh, and a, and a, a thatch, thatch roof above that. So you can imagine a settlement of uh, similar structures. We know the people that lived in them, there's a bit of historical evidence for, obviously, for the time of the massacre. John MacDonald of Achtrichten uh, is the sort of taxman, headman uh, of the village itself. Uh, and there may have been in the township uh, 30, 40 people living uh, at the time of the massacre uh, in 1692. And there was... There was um, Troops billeted there as well. 
But on the night of the massacre, he goes down with his servant to visit his brother further down the glen at Achnacon, and he's there in the morning. Uh, so they spent the night probably drinking and gambling and uh, having a good time uh, when the soldiers burst in at five in the morning. And um, uh, Mickey, uh, not Mickey, um, MacDonald of Achtrichten is killed there with his servant, but his brother from Achnacon manages to get away. Uh, there's not much in the reports of documentary side of things about other casualties at Achtrichten, and because it's further up the glen, it's possible that many people did manage to escape there. There's a suggestion in Treble's book that um, a, an older man, possibly one of the poets, um, had, had been shot uh, when the uh, the troops came across at 11 o'clock blocking off the, the glen and he'd been too frail to get away at that time. Uh, but there's also a suggestion that quite a lot of people were given warnings. You know, not all the troops were happy with this um, turning on their hosts kind of thing. So there's there's a lot of traditional tales that suggest that, um, and I think Achtrichten's one of them where uh, there's supposedly somebody speaking to the dog the night before, lying by the fire, old grey dog, if I was you, I wouldn't be here in the morning type thing. And everybody goes, all oh, right, and they disappear off into the hills that night. Um, so there's less folk in the morning to, for the for the soldiers to massacre. So it's um, there, there's a there's a certain element of uh, um, historical um, documentary records that we can link to the, the the places, but it's not they're not that detailed, unfortunately. So we tend to know the you know the people who are higher up the list. Uh, by the time it comes to the 18th century, though, we get more and more records. So there's more. Um, parish records, and there's also the McDonald's of Glencoe turn out to fight for Bonnie Prince Charlie in the 45, and the McDonald's there uh, um, managed to send about 100 men, 150 men, uh, into the Jacobite army. Um, and when you look through the muster rolls for uh, that army, there are 10 uh, men listed from Achtrichten Township in 1745 and what's quite nice is it gives you their names but sometimes gives you their occupations and we know that the, again the taxman from the headman from the village uh, I think he's Angus MacDonald uh, by this time um, who must be about 70 fights at the Battle of Preston Pans uh, and uh, and is killed there in the, in the Highland Charge as it takes out, I think it's on the right wing um, but the rest of them we think survive the 45 there's there's records of them but, and it, some of them are listed as being you know a merchant a drover uh, and a uh, father and son are listed as being keepers of the change house uh, and the change house is is really just a small inn or, or, or a, you know it's a, a, a probably not as grand a term as that I mean it's probably quite an informal building where you could rest and have a probably a a dram and maybe some beer and some food before moving on. Um, and it's possible that one of the buildings that we've been digging could be could be the remains of the inn. And in fact, we found uh, a remain, uh, a shard of uh, very fine manganese mottled ware pottery, which is, it tends to come in sort of tankard forms uh, and it sort of mimics sort of leathered, leather tankards. You know, it's got sort of like a skewer morph. It's got sort of um, banding around it. And often they come stamped um, uh, with the name of the king at the time. Uh, and 
that we didn't find that bit, but I'd love to go back and find it if we could. Because if it said, I'd be interested to know whether it's like James or or William. Uh, but I mean, the tankers, the, the the pottery sort of dates, you know, roughly from the mid seventeenth through to the mid eighteenth century. So it could be either the time of the massacre, or it could be up to the forty five sort of thing. And that, that's one of the the difficult things with with archaeology, isn't it? It's tying it down archaeological remains to specific events, um, and you know don't know whether that house that we're actually digging was was one of the ones that was involved in the massacre or not but uh, the more we dig the more chances we have of finding something that would would tie it in yeah no i was going to ask you about the the um if there's any artifacts that had sort of come up from the dig as well or would you say with that that was that the most interesting mystery um yeah so i've got the range of ceramics and the usual type of things for sort of 18th century buildings anyway so um uh trailed slipware um uh some white glazed uh ceramics plates and that side of things that's a piece of manganese mottled wear a lot of bottle glass one bit of window glass um which got to get analyzed to see whether it's something modern that's crept in from the other side of the road or whether it's uh, actually part of a an 18th century uh, window uh, on the, the house um, and quite a few iron uh, and other metal artefacts. So, you know, a coin, unfortunately, too ro- uh, corroded to be able to tell what it was. Um, a lock, uh, quite a big, chunky iron lock, which we think may be from uh, something like a dresser or a, a cupboard that would have been in one end of the building. And then the usual mix of domestic and agricultural things. So, you know, tools knives and uh, horseshoes and things like that. No broadswords or anything like that, unfortunately. that's I'm, I'm holding out for those somewhere, but yeah, not if they're hidden in the thatch. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you said it's a fascinating that you'd like to go back. Do you think there is a lot more? Yeah, we've just, we've really just, as ever, you know, scratched the surface type stuff. Mm. You know, we, we've only just opened up this one trench over the, the one of the structures, there are another four structures there and the areas around the, you know, the the, the yards and things that would be interesting to have uh, uh, investigations of. And then there's, there are remains on some of the other sites further down the glen. So there's, there's structures at Achnacon uh, as well. Uh, and we've also got, we're working with um, Glasgow University students uh, who's doing a PhD on looking at shillings. And he's looking at one of the, the glens that are off um, uh, the main glen, uh, so Glen Lake Namui, uh, which is where the summer sort of summer grazings were. So just starting to look at, at that side of things. So that's our Eddie Stewart is, is his name. He's doing some work um, up there, which is which is good. Okay. And yeah, we were talking a bit about this before uh, we started recording, but the, the National Trust of Scotland are building a, a replica house, I think, is at Glencoe Visitor Centre. Yes. Um, How's that going? It's go. It's going very well. Uh, I mean, the, the the reason for for doing that is the again the the archaeology at in itself is is very subtle, so it's difficult to to make out and and to interpret on the ground. Um, but it's also quite a fast bit of the road. I think it's the A eighty two that runs up through there. So people are some people are looking up at the mountains. Other people are trying to overtake. It's you know, and there's, I can't remember three million folk travel travel through it every year. Um, it's not the easiest place to stop. There's a big lay by further down, but not many people 
would wander up to where the, the township was. So there was no point in trying to interpret the site on the ground. We can do guided walks there, you know, every every few years or every, you know, in the summer months sort of thing or when we're digging, it works quite well. Um, but the best idea was to take the evidence that we got from the excavation and build a, a structure based on our, you know, our best estimate of what we thought the thing would have been like. Um, so more people can visit it at the uh, at the visitor center uh, and then we can tell the story of the uh, of the people who lived in the glen not just the massacre i mean it's it's more than that just that one day obviously um so it's it's come on a long way it was meant to be uh, constructed over uh, last year um or and of course covid hit and we were meant to be doing it with groups of volunteers we had our working holiday sort of thistle camps all planned in to have you know, 10 or 12 folk coming at a time to work with skilled craftspeople to undertake the work. Um, and unfortunately, we couldn't do that because we couldn't, we weren't allowed to, you know, we're basically with COVID restrictions. Um, but we have managed to move on this year quite quickly with just the, the, the craftspeople working on site. Uh, and we collected most of the material locally so we've got stones uh, for the foundations we laid them out in the the same dimensions as the the structure at um and um, we've aligned it sort of uh, along the valley and uh, one of the, the the sort of doorway facing towards the river um, and then we've built it's got a stone foundation and then the upper part of the walls are uh, turf uh, cut just from down slope from where the the um the house is built and they're maybe about 80 centimeters wide and about uh maybe uh, a meter 60 high meter 70 that sort of thing and then a crook frame on the inside uh, and then we've now just at the stage of putting on a heather thatch uh, and that should be finished hopefully by the end of this month uh, in uh, August and probably I mean gathering all the materials and one of the things that it really tells you is just how much material goes into one of these structures you know it really must have been a community effort in the past to to construct buildings and houses um so all the turf is building but the getting the right heather is quite difficult we had to get that from up close to one of our other estates at mar lodge in the central highlands because so much of it now is grazed too short and you need quite long heather for thatching. Um, so we had to had to go where it's not getting grazed quite as heavily and um, and pull tons of it uh, for the roof. So it has to be really quite thick as well because it's quite it's quite porous heather. So it needs to be on quite a steep pitch and quite a, quite a mass of it. So yeah, it's, it's just about there. So I'm looking forward to seeing it when it's when it's finished uh, and then hopefully we'll build an interpretation uh, and tell the story of people uh, in Glencoe. Okay, well, um, best of luck with the, the replica, Derek, and uh, thanks very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Callum. That was great. Thanks again, Derek. And don't forget that you can read his article in the latest issue of Current Archaeology, which is out now, as well as online at the past website, where you'll find plenty of extra content on the Jacobites and other significant events in Scottish history. That's all for this week. The Passcast is going to take a short break for the rest of the month, but we'll be back in the autumn to give you more interviews and discussions about history, heritage, archaeology, and the ancient world. If you enjoyed this podcast and this series, do leave us a favourable rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe either. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon.